Well, good morning. Uh, we're going to look in Acts 8 this morning, Acts chapter 8. You can turn there if you'd like to. Um, I'll just a little bit about, uh, about me. My name's Pat Coyle. I served almost 20 years on staff here at Grace. I actually grew up at Grace. Been involved in the, the history and the background of this church. It's really exciting for me this year that we're celebrating our 50th anniversary. That corresponds almost exactly with my 50th anniversary. Um, and uh, it's just uh, really exciting as I look around the room. Zach, Zach told you about the, the flags up there. Um, what he didn't mention was that these flags represent nations touched by the ministry of Grace Bible Church in some way. So as you look around the room, now some of those may have been touched as ministry took place here in College Station with an international student, someone who's from that nation. But many of them are uh, touched by folks just like you from here going out to the nations and, and, and serving and, and sharing the gospel. And oh, what a great heritage. Um, for 1968, had our first missions conference. Uh, Joe Wall was the pastor of the church, was hardly even able to support Joe as its pastor. And by faith, Joe held a missions conference. And he's going to be with us at the 50th anniversary celebration. You'll probably hear this story. Um, held a missions conference and the church voted to support three missionaries at $10 a month by faith. That was a big step of faith for this little church at that time. As big step of faith for Joe, who wasn't even necessarily getting his paycheck uh, uh, month by month. But um, from that, the Lord has has really literally touched the nations. And, and you and I are a part of that as we uh, are here this morning worshiping, as we consider what God is speaking uh, to our hearts through this, this message this morning from the life of Philip. So we're going to look in depth at Philip, ordinary servant, extraordinary impact. As we look at, at Philip's life, I want to introduce two other stories that will kind of parallel Philip's story for us. Agnes and Nick. So Agnes was born to Albanian refugees and raised in poverty. Nick was born in Denmark into wealth and nobility. He was a nobleman. They lived in two different parts of the world. They lived at two different periods in two different periods of history. Yet both of them lived lives of phenomenal, phenomenal spiritual significance and phenomenal global impact. And I think it's because of one thing that I can think of. You know, I talked about the contrasts between them very briefly here. We're going to hear a little bit more about them in, in a few minutes. But uh, one thing that they had in common is the same characteristic that makes our main character in Acts 8 today uh, a really extraordinary individual. So I want to look at his story and then I'll bring you back to Agnes and, and, and Nick. Anybody remember Paul Harvey's The Rest of the Story? We're going to do the rest of the story in a little while, but right, that's all we know about Agnes and Nick at this point. We just want to kind of set those stories there for you as we look into the life of Philip. So Philip, Acts chapter 8, we want to set the stage. We've got to get a little context here because uh, uh, last week uh, we looked uh, at, the, at the story of Stephen. We're going to talk about that in just a second, but if you think way back to the beginning of our series in Acts, if you were here, Brian was introducing the book. He looked at Acts 1-8 as kind of our outline for the book of Acts. And Acts 1-8 is one of the statements of the Great Commission in Scripture. And it talks about that we receive power and the Holy Spirit has come upon us. And we'll be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, 
and the uttermost parts of the earth. And Brian pointed out how the book of Acts follows that trajectory. And and there's a period of time of ministry in Jerusalem, period of time in uh, ministry in Judea and Samaria, and then then the the taking of the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth. Well, chapter 8 begins phase 2 of that outline. Chapter 8 begins the the Judea and Samaria part of the outline. So we're going to see that right off the bat. Let's look at uh, verses 1. Uh, Begin in verse 1. We're just going to read a few here. Saul, uh, remember the context. So the martyrdom of Stephen has just happened. And Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. There it is. Part 2 of Acts 1.8. Some devout men buried Stephen, made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word, and Philip went. We'll stop right there for now. A couple of things to look at as we set the stage for the story of Philip. Stephen's service, his life of service was was inspirational. His final message was inspirational, and he was martyred. His martyrdom was consequential and inspirational uh, there was obviously a profound effect on the church body, but there was a pr- profound effect just in their physical circumstances. Why? Because what resulted was persecution, scattering, sorrow, and ravaging. Those are the words that we read in the description of what was happening against the church as a result of this unleashing of, of persecution uh, in, the, in the wake of Stephen's martyrdom. So what's the church? How are they going to respond? How are they going to respond? Their response was, Bold sharing of the gospel as they went, as they scattered. And Philip is included in in that scattering and in that bold sharing of the gospel. So they and Philip go, they go to Samaria, they're proclaiming Christ. That's the the setup uh, for Acts chapter 8. But we want to talk a little bit now about Philip himself. And Philip would say is characterized by this idea of surrender. And we're going to unpack that a whole lot more as we continue this morning. But we see that from the very start, he was a man who lived his life surrendered. His backstory is uh, in Acts chapter 6. And I think we actually read that in setting up for Stephen. But let's jump back there again, especially for those who weren't here. Acts 6. This is a story of the choosing of the seven who would be what we call deacons. In service, explains it here, begin in verse 1. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because of their, their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It's not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and ministry of the word. The statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip and the others. And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. They ordained them as deacons. So there is kind of the foundation, the first thing that we know about Philip And these words that describe this group of men can be used to describe Philip, right? Because he was part of that group of men. Good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, who may be put in charge of a task, 
Uh, the task was the cert- waiting tables, really. It wasn't a very um, glamorous or upfront, uh, glorious task, but these were trustworthy to be put in charge of an important task of service on behalf of these widows. So there we see uh, evidence of Philip's character in the description of this group of men among whom uh, he was chosen uh, to serve. A little bit about his culture, his background. Okay, it says that uh, this, this happened among Hellenistic Jews. So uh, Hellenism was uh, the idea of uh, Jewish uh, uh, followers who, who had adopted, it's, I'm, I'm really simplifying, but adopted Greek ways. Okay, so they were living, uh, uh, professing uh, Judaism, professing Jewish faith, but had adopted Greek ways. And so really in the eyes of the, um, the Jewish establishment, the leadership, the the uh, the native Hebrews, they were looked down upon. A lot of them were uh, proselytes. They were, they were not as elite, uh, in a sense, as the, as the, um, the, the uh, cultural Jews, the established Jews, the leaders. And, and you can see, you can assume that the, you know, the ordination of these deacons, the, the choosing, the laying on of hands of these deacons, these Hellenists as leaders, was, was already indicating a, a kind of an expanding idea in the mindset of the apostles who were of the established Judaism themselves, uh, the mindset that, uh, that, that they're already uh, expanding the idea that there's worthiness to lead uh, within the larger body of Christ among these people that we kind of have viewed as different. And so there's really a, a, an interesting shift in their cultural mindset as we begin to see this, this uh, thrusting out of the gospel cross-culturally. And we can also assume from the context that Philip lived up to his calling, his, this ordination that he had received, uh, it's not specifically described in his actions until he appears again in chapter 8. Uh, but we, we assume from the context that he did what he was tasked. Like Stephen, we just saw he was spirit-filled. He was uh, uh, willing to allow the fullness of the spirit and the operation and the, and the work of the spirit uh, through him. He was dependent we see that he was servant-hearted. He, he took on this role of servanthood, of wait, waiting tables. Uh, and he willingly took it on and, and apparently did well in it because his leadership is affirmed uh, as we come into chapter 8. He was active. He was ready to serve. He was self-surrendered. And that's that term we're going to be coming back to again and again. He had laid himself down and, and willingly given himself to whatever God was going to uh, call him to do. And thus he was willing and ready for anything that the Lord would set before him. And I think it's important to say that he was ordinary. There's nothing from the description of Philip that indicates to us that he was uh, a priest or a scholar or a, me- a member of any elite social class within Judaism or within the church. Uh, probably a very ordinary person, his credentials or his Christ. Proof positive is Philip of this uh, adage that we use, uh, I like to call myself and a lot of people I hang around with missions nerds, okay? Those of us who kind of get into missions stuff all the time, among us missions nerds, there's this term, God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. And Philip is proof positive of that idea. So there's this background. There's a little bit about who Philip was and where he was coming from. And, and now we see, as, as Acts 8 unfolds, the strategy uh, that Philip followed in his ministry unfolding and how that strategy was also surrendered. So let's pick up reading again. Uh, verse 5. <clears throat> Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. The crowds were the one accord 
were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them, shouting with a loud voice, and many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was much rejoicing in that city, I would say so. (laughs) Now there was a man named Simon who was formerly practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. And they all, from the smallest to the greatest, were giving attention to him, to Simon, saying, this man is what is called the great power of God. And they were giving him attention because he had for a long time astonished them with his magic arts. But when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued on with Philip. And as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. Now, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Let's pause there and just kind of talk through the storytelling this morning. Just kind of looking at and telling uh, the story of Philip. So Philip, we see a surrendered life, as we're saying. And first of all, his strategy was surrendered to the God over circumstances. Notice I didn't say he surrendered to circumstances. He was surrendered to the God over circumstances. He recognized God's sovereignty in the circumstances and he was surrendered to God's direction through that. Verse four, back in the earlier verses, the troubles of persecution are happening. Philip is dislodged from Jerusalem and he ends up in what is arguably for Jewish people at that point in time, the armpit of the world at that time. Okay? There was no respect, no joy over Samaria or Samaritans among practicing Jews. The history of that goes back to 2 Kings 17. And we see there that Gentiles were put into the land by the Assyrians into this area. And the Jews in the area mixed in marriage with the Gentiles. And there was a resulting race, the Samaritans of Samaria, that was despised by both the Jews and the Gentiles. So they were kind of isolated under themselves. They had their own form of Judaism, their own form of traditions, their own holy mountain. And they were certainly looked down upon uh, by the, the, these Jewish leaders of the early church. And that's the, the context into which Philip and his band were thrust to minister by the dispersion that was taking place. The circumstances ended up putting them there. And for them, that adversity was embraced as opportunity. These who were persecuted became preachers. They became conveyors of the good news. They entered into the circumstances they were given. And what was the result? Verses five through eight, much, much sharing of the gospel, much faith in Christ, healings, uh, demon uh, deliverances, uh, attention getting uh, ministry, and much rejoicing over the work of what the Holy Spirit was doing in this community. So much so that even the local witch doctor, the guy named Simon that we saw introduced there, uh, sees this and he professes faith in Christ. This was a guy who was viewed by the community as that great man of God. And he saw the greater greatness of God himself in the gospel and the work that was taking place. uh, And even he believes and uh, and professes faith. We're going to talk about Simon uh, a little bit more in just a second. So we see Philip and his band, we see their surrender to the, the, the God over the circumstances, letting, letting circumstances direct them. But we also see a surrender to godly authority. 
We also see this in, in verses 14 through 17, that, that point where the apostles come and they lay hands on, there's this separate falling of the Holy Spirit uh, on, on these believers. And you kinda, we kind of scratch our heads on that because we believe and teach, as Paul does in the book of Romans, that uh, for the established church, when we put our faith in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, we receive his Holy Spirit as a seal. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit. Believers in Christ have the Holy Spirit. So what was this thing of they believe, but they didn't have the Holy Spirit yet? Well, there's a lot of theology and a lot of discussion we could have on that. Very simply put, we see in this period of time in the book of Acts, a, a season where God is using the ministry of the apostles to do that, laying on the hands and the, and the falling of the Holy Spirit through that as a, as a statement of okay, as a statement of authority, of a statement of affirmation. Because when the gospel moved into these new cultural settings, good, honest believers were going to call it, in, is, is this real? Can this truly be? And so there's this moment where the apostles come and they, and they give this affirmation and the Holy Spirit comes. There's the seal. There's this, the God's seal of affirmation upon the work that was being done by Philip and his crew in this town in Samaria. And uh, it's amazing. It's so amazing, in fact, that here comes Simon again. And in this section, as we, as we transfer into what's happening here, we see Philip and his band and their surrender to the Holy Spirit and, and, and the true work of the Spirit so verses 18 through 24, we left off at 17 there. Verses 18 through, 18 through 24 describe a situation where Simon comes back on the scene and uh, he sees this laying on of hands by the apostles' authority and, 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 the, and the spirit comes and falls on these people and he wants that. And, and so he says, hey, I'll give you some money to, uh, to show me how to do that. That's coming from Simon's background. He was, he was uh, into magic. And it's important to note that um, uh, uh, magic at that time was, was, also, was probably some illusion, but it was also a situation where spiritual powers, demonic forces were at work uh, behind uh, the work of the magician. So he comes with that background and he says, can I give you money? And Peter says in verse 20, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter. Your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness. Pray that the Lord, if possible, uh, the, pray the Lord that if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and the bondage of iniquity. And Simon answers, pray to the Lord for me yourselves so that nothing of what you said may come upon me. Now what's going on? This is the... Um, this is the Simon sideshow, okay? There's a little, little moment here. We gotta, we've got to look at what's going on here. The Holy Spirit is powerfully at work and Simon who profited from spiritual activity is seen, uh, uh, is impressed by what's going on. And remember that, that what he was experiencing in his past was, had both a, a deceptive side to it, an illusionary side to it, but also a spiritual side to it. He's even more impressed when the apostles come with this power of an authority and the falling of the spirit. He thinks he can buy it. There are differing interpretations of what's going on here, okay? If you, uh, I'm just going to tell you what I think. And I've looked into it, I've studied it, I've looked at the varying opinions. If you disagree with me, you can go find a commentary that agrees with what you say, that's okay. But here's mine. I believe that Simon genuinely believed. There's some people who question whether or not he genuinely believed because of the harshness of some of Peter's words. I believe he genuinely professed faith in Christ, placed his faith in Christ, but like us all, he still had a big flaw in his flesh. He came into his faith in Christ with a lot of baggage. Anybody relate to that? <laughs> he came into his faith in Christ with a lot of baggage, a lot of history, a lot of background, a lot of bad stuff. 
his fleshly coveting of that power and his manipulation to try to get it is dangerous. It's sin. And Peter rebukes it. And Simon seems to get the seriousness of it. He seems to, wow, this is really serious. And, he, and he's not even willing to say that his own prayers for himself would be of any good. Will you, play, will you please pray for me that these things will not come upon me? And we have no idea if he changed. God doesn't give us that information. Don't really get the rest of the story in that case. But the bottom line, I think this is important to take some time aside and spend on this bottom line. Sin is bad and sin can take you out. And whether it's baggage you brought with you into your faith in Christ or things you've picked up along the way, if there's something persistently uh, that that Peter would describe in these terms, uh, it's time to grapple with that. It's time to seek the help of those around you, to ask them to pray, to seek the Lord, because this life of surrender that we're talking about can't be hindered by hanging on to this kind of baggage. And Simon needed to get rid of that baggage in order to be effective in whatever God might have called him to. And we don't know what the outcome is. But for us, we can say, if there's something like that we're carrying along, it's time to get help and get on with it and leave those things behind. So Philip and his band see this going on and they remain surrendered to the work of the spirit through this. And then they remain, uh, he personally, Philip remains surrendered to the work of the spirit, spirit in the next phase. Let's pick up reading in verse 25. So when they had solemnly testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they started back to Jerusalem and were preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. But an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip saying, get up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert road. So he got up and went. And there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship. And he was returning and sitting in his chariot and was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go up and join this chariot. Philip ran up and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, well, how could I unless someone guides me? It's one of those great moments, again, for us missions nerds, people that look at God's work among the nations. And how can they know? People who are in dark places, uh, who have some understanding of spiritual things and they're curious and they're hungry and yearning. How can they know unless someone explains it to them? That's our role, to get out there and be involved and be engaged in guiding people. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. The passage of scripture he was reading was this. He was led as a sheep to slaughter and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he does not open his mouth. In humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Who will relate to his generation? Who will relate his generation? For his life is removed from the earth. The eunuch answered Philip and said, please tell me of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or someone else? Philip opened his mouth and beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. As they went along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe Jesus Christ is the son of God. He ordered the chariot to stop. They both went down into the water Philip, as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. But Philip found himself, sorry, when they came up out of the water, I almost skipped the best verse. When they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away and the eunuch no longer saw him, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip found himself at Azotus 
And as he passed through, he kept preaching the gospel to all the cities until he came to Caesarea. So they're heading back to Jerusalem from the ministry in Samaria. They do more work in Samaria along the way, sharing in cities, more rejoicing, more healing, more proclamation of the gospel, but God's not done yet. And in, in, in verse uh, 26, there's this clear vocal direction from the Holy Spirit via this angel. And Philip, I've got something different for you. Head south. And Philip does. He immediately obeys. And on that course and out of that obedience on this road south, Philip encounters an international a person there in his culture who is from another culture who is genuinely seeking and sitting there actually opening, reading God's word. Philip in this context is what? What are some characteristics of Philip? He's available. His eyes, and he's already obeyed. He's walking down the road. His eyes and his ears are open. He's responsive and obedient. The call comes and he's on his way. He's ready to move in any direction. He's prepared What happens? He hears this man reading Isaiah 53 out loud. Somehow Philip had prepared himself with some knowledge of God's word, some preparation in God's word, and his preparation to share the gospel in the way that he did. He was ready because the preparation he had gone through, uh, a guy wouldn't have been able to take Isaiah 53 and, 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 and convey it in that way to the gospel without some background in God's word. And he's flexible. The, the, the eunuch says, what prevents me from being baptized? Oh, here's some water, and off they go. He wasn't uh, bound to cultural forms or, or, or particular ways of having to. Now, they didn't have churches with baptistries, but you know, he wasn't doing the equivalent of, well, no, this isn't the way it works. It's like, sure, there's water, let's go. He was flexible. And the impact of his available, availability and his surrender, think about this. The very lowest of the low, The Samaritans from the armpit of society, the very highest of the high, an Ethiopian from the court of the queen of Ethiopia, the lowest of the low, the highest of the high are reached. Their lives are changed. They're transformed. The gospel is advanced. Gospel is advanced in Samaria and we see the beginning of the advancement to the nations. Why? Because the Ethiopian went rejoicing. Where did he go? Back home. You can bet the people in the court of the Queen, Can- of Queen Candace of Ethiopia heard the good news that this man had encountered by which he had seen his life changed. And then he's teleported. Everything, everything changes in that miraculous moment. Suddenly he's not there anymore. They come up out of the water and boom. I'd love to know what that was like for the Ethiopian I'd love to know what that was like for Philip as well. Just to experience that suddenly you're in another, in another place. Let's think about this. Philip has been directed by an, apost- an apostolic call to serve. Okay, back in Acts 6. He's been directed by an unwanted dispersion to an unwanted location. He's been directed by a voice from an angel sent by the Holy Spirit. And now he's been directed by a miraculous physical relocation in an instant from one place to another. And in every situation, Philip's response is still surrendered. In every one of those different ways that God directed him, he surrendered. He was willing to go with the direction that the Lord set before him. And so here he is at the end uh, in in Azotus, Azotus, 
this is uh, Ashdod, if you, uh, for, from your Old Testament readings, the same, same location. And it says he found himself there. The important note about Philip is wherever Philip found himself was just where God wanted him. That was his attitude. Wherever I am, this is where God has planted. The bloom where you're planted, kind of an idea. That was, that was evident in this man's surrender, in his lifestyle. It says he passed through, so he kept on moving. He's ultimately headed to Caesarea. Kept on moving by the Spirit. It's, it's as if, you know, there's this moment. He's, he's doing the baptism. The guy comes up, pow. He has no idea what happens, but he wakes up in a different place, shakes it off. What was I doing? Oh, yeah, the gospel. And just kept on doing the thing that he had been called to do. Kept preaching the gospel to all the cities. Uh, from there to Caesarea, he keeps going, keeps going. I like to say he's the energizer bunny of the book of Acts, right? He keeps going and going and going without a loss of energy, without a stop. That's Philip. And we're going to just take a moment now as we kind of begin to wrap up to look at some applications from the life of Philip. But I promised you a little bit more information uh, from the lives of Agnes and Nick. So more about Agnes. Remember, Agnes was, I said, poverty born to a refugee family. And in that context, seeing the need around her, she surrendered, there's that word, to ministry at age 18. And and she joined a convent, a walled in convent community. So joined a community then a convent that was walled in. At 36, still serving in that context, she was on a, on a trip and she saw more of the world outside of her walls. She surrendered again to leave the walls and go and live in the slums of Calcutta. So born Agnes, she changed her name to Teresa. Mother Teresa of Calcutta. And even when she gained celebrity, she surrendered that. There's surrender again. She surrendered that celebrity she, she got the Nobel Prize and worldwide attention. She surrendered that to be used for the benefit of her mission. Instead of Mother Teresa, she committed her life to working with the poor throughout the world. She lived among impoverished people so that she could better serve them. She created a new order, the Missionaries of Charity. She established orphanages, schools, and homes for the elderly and terminally, terminally ill. Her work attracted the attention of the world and earned her the Nobel Peace Prize She eventually established organizations to help people on every continent. And there is this simple, humble woman noted in 100leaders.org. 100 leaders of all history. And there is this simple, simple, quiet woman. Because her life was surrendered, uh, she had a global impact. So Nick, you recall, was born of a very different background from that of Teresa. He was born Count Nicholas Ludwig von Zinzendorf. How many have heard the name of Zinzendorf? Not very many. I'm so glad that I'm going to enlighten you about Nicholas von Zinzendorf today. You need to know more about Zinzendorf. Okay. Raised by his Lutheran pietistic grandmother, he trusted Christ. Pietism was an evangelical movement uh, in the period of the Reformation. He trusted Christ at an early age. His passion for ministry grew and he despised his wealthy status. He didn't want 
to be a wealthy dude, okay? But he couldn't get rid of it because kind of like Prince Charles, you know, you just got your duty to do. He couldn't get rid of the, of the, uh, the calling of royalty and everything. And so rather than, than fight it, he surrendered. Surrendered to the causes of prayer and global evangelism. He harnessed his wealth. He even harnessed his actual estate grounds, the estate that he inherited. He, he harnessed the grounds and that wealth to provide for religious refugees, okay, people persecuted in the time of the Reformation, and made it possible there on those grounds for one of the most vast and long-lasting prayer and missions movements in all of history, the Moravian Brethren. Maybe some of you haven't heard of Zinzendorf. I've heard of the Moravians. Even when he tried to be a missionary, so he goes to the frontier of America to work among the Native Americans. He's trying to be a missionary. And because of his kind of hoity-toity upbringing, he didn't like it, okay? He didn't like the discomfort of the, of the frontier and he didn't like the ways of the Indians. He was really struggling with that. And so rather than be something he wasn't, he went back to the, to the office in the city, the Moravian Sending Center. And there, using his gifts and his leadership, he put 20 more missionaries on the field there in North America before he returned to his native Denmark. These are some things that are said of Nick. (laughs) The Moravian brethren took the great commission to heart, paving the way for the great era of modern missions, which was in the century that followed. During the 18th century alone, they planted mission stations across a vast portion of the globe. This was before jet airplanes, y'all. This was tough travel. And I lost my place. A prayer vigil was begun that continued around the clock, seven days a week, without interruption, for more than 100 years. 100 years, seven days a week, 24 hours a day, prayer for the cause of global missions. No wonder it was a movement that, that, that saturated the world at the time against all expectations. Zinzendorf's contribution to missions is best seen in the lives of the men and women who accepted his challenge to forsake all for the sake of the gospel. Their sole motivation was Christ's sacrificial love for the world. And it was with that message that they went to the ends of the earth. So got Teresa on this end, kind of low stature, low beginnings of life. Nicholas von Zinzendorf, a count, royalty on this end. And, And Philip, probably a much more ordinary guy like you or me, kind of somewhere in the middle of these two extremes, but all three lives that had a vast global impact, I believe for one reason, because they were completely surrendered to the move of God in their lives. So what about you? What about me? How do we respond to that? Especially in the context of a week where we're looking uh, at our great commission. I, uh, during the first service we were singing and, and the words of that uh, first song in the main set that we sang struck me. I want to remind you all that you sang, I lay me down. I'm not my own. I belong to you. It'll be my joy to say your will, your way, always. I was sitting right here. I heard you sing it. And that was our heart when we were singing it, Right? Uh, not, not just captured, captivated in the worship, but understanding all that Christ has done for us and the beauty and the majesty and the good news of it. Lord, it's your will. It's your way. I surrender. I want to go. I want to do what you want me to do. That's the surrendered life. And so I'm hoping as we wrap up, we talk about some specific applications that, that truly is our heart this morning. What we sang a few moments ago is truly what's on our heart.
So what about me? Are you wrestling with God's will? I just revisit for a minute for for Philip, wherever he was, was God's desire. So that starts here where you are right now. And it applies to wherever he sends, thrusts, transports you, (laughs) wherever he has you for the rest of your lives, where he has you is his desire for you. Stay in the flow of, stay in obedience to that. Are you getting and staying equipped? Philip was ready when the times came because he had spent time having invested in himself uh, in terms of God's word, understanding God's word, understanding how to share the gospel. He was clearly ready for the moments he encountered There are plenty of opportunities in this church body to help you be ready. First and foremost, I can think of is just one of our small groups. Within the context of our small groups, you have opportunity to engage in life and service and worship with a smaller group of people centered around God's word, connected to a missionary. We're going to talk about that in just a second. But but an opportunity to get equipped, to get prepared, to get ready. And throughout the year, we're offering training opportunities like those this week, like uh, Grace 360 in January. Opportunities to grow. We had evangelism training a couple of weeks ago. Are you availing yourself of the opportunities constantly surrounding you to be prepared and to be equipped? And are you aware of what your church is doing in terms of and in response to your great commission? Okay, and I say that very specifically. Acts 1 8, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, the great commission of Jesus Christ is the commission to his church. We are all part of his church. It is our great commission. And when you look at the wording there in Acts 1 8, Jerusalem, our Jerusalem, and Judea and Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth, I believe it's very clear that it's part and parcel of the calling of every Christian, not simply to be worried about the little world around you that you're so busy with, but to be thinking about the globe, to be thinking about the nations, and to be engaged in that as well as what you're engaged in here in some small way, at least. The cause is so great, and the need is so great. We all need to be engaged together in that calling, not only to our Jerusalem, our Judea and Samaria, but to the uttermost parts of the earth. And grace has some things going on that you can be a part of that help you get there. So to get really specific, three steps. And I want to challenge you in answer to your prayer. Lord, take me. (laughs) That you sang a little while ago. Lord, what do you want me to do this week? There's an opportunity before me this week. What do you want me to do this week, this moment? I would say start today, get informed, and get going. Okay, those three things. So those three things, start today. When you leave this service right now, I'm going to give you free lunch. I'm not doing it, actually. Global Outreach Ministry is doing it. But there's free lunch waiting for you. Our mission's tailgate today. As you leave, they're going to have the the door kind of blocked on the right-hand side. You can go out on the portico, go to the right, pick up a lunch, bring it back in here to the fellowship hall, and we're going to spend some time together. We're going to provide lunch for you so you don't have to worry about that. And begin to get an understanding of what God is doing globally through this church and through some of the agencies that we partner with. They're going to be here. So you're going to have a plenary session with Chris Merrill, who's head of Launch Global. I'm going to talk about that in just a moment. Uh, And you'll get to know Chris uh, through that. And then these two breakouts and four different agencies are here. You have an opportunity during those two breakout sessions to go listen, interact, and, and pray and consider what God's saying to you. So start today. Get informed and trained. Two opportunities coming up. First of all, I mentioned Launch Global. We have a ministry here embedded in Grace Bible Church, cooperating with our staff called Launch Global. They form launch groups. These are small groups specifically formed for those of us who sense, you know, I'm not quite sure, but I think God's calling me to some greater engagement in his cause for the nations. 
and I want to figure out what that is and I want to figure out if I should be going and I want to, if I'm going I want to figure out how I should be going and that's what launch groups do for you over the course of uh, less than a year together uh, you engage in a, in a specified uh, study and encouragement to help you get launched into the ministry that God has for you so that's available all the time and you can meet Chris Merrill today and find out more about it at the luncheon perspectives on the world Christian movement every spring in College Station Uh, we offer this course often here at Grace, 15 weeks. I always say it'll mess your life up good. It is, (laughs) it is, excuse me, one of the most life-changing things in terms of your perspective on the world and your role in the world and God's heart for the nations that you could ever, uh, ever experience. It's a time commitment. A lot of you haven't been able to take it because it's always been on Monday nights. This spring, there are going to be two classes, one on Sunday afternoon here at Grace Anderson and one on Monday nights. So hopefully there's less of an excuse for you not to be able to take it with those two opportunities being offered. If you've been thinking about perspectives and Sunday afternoon is better for you, um, we're going to offer that for you. And the last thing, get going. A couple of things here. International students, even in this service right now, there are people from all over the world worshiping with us. And they're here in College Station, here at Texas A&M. It's a wonderful opportunity that we've been availed of uh, to engage in life with people from different cultures, to engage cross-culturally, to share uh, our lives and our hope and our gospel. At the giveaway that we had in August, 100 international students asked for dinner in an American home. 50 of them have been placed there's an opportunity for you to have an international student into your home, have a meal with them, talk about life, talk about your hope, answer their questions, talk about your hope in Christ, share life together, uh, and begin a very, very tangible and practical way of touching people from outside this culture. Go on a short-term mission trip. There's information on the website about these trips for 2016. I'm not going to go specifically down them because we're already a little bit over, but uh, there are short-term opportunities for you. You see families there. You see students there. You see youth. That covers almost everybody in the room, okay? Should cover everybody in the room. Opportunities to go, to engage directly in something out there with other people from grace among the nations. And then the last thing, connect with a grace missionary. We support about 75 missionaries total. About 40 of those live and work outside the continental United States, work and live cross-culturally. Every one of those missionaries I mentioned is connected with one of our small groups. If you're in a small group, either a home group or a Sunday morning group, simplest thing in the world for you to connect with one of our missionaries. You're beginning to connect with that global part of the Great Commission, connecting with one of our missionaries, praying for them, possibly financially supporting them. If you're in one of those small groups, you have a missionary. Ask your leader. Leaders, look out because they're going to start asking this week, I pray. And we're sending out new information to the leaders this week. Everybody should be aware of who their group's missionary is. Let's make this the year where those relationships between those groups and those missionaries is everything we've ever dreamed it could be. They're encouraged. We're encouraged. And, and, and the gospel goes more strongly and more powerfully into the culture where those missionaries uh, live and work. If you're not involved in a small group, get involved in a small group. <laughs> it's a great great way to grow. If that's not practical for you right now, this Wednesday night at 7 p.m. here at Grace Anderson, six or eight of our missionaries will be sharing. Uh, You can come have dessert, coffee on us, decaf if you need it, uh, and uh, go into breakout sessions and sit down for 45 minutes at two different sessions and actually sit face-to-face with one of our missionaries in that conversation by going up to them and saying, how can I get your prayer letters? How can I pray for you and begin that relationship? 
connect. Practical stuff, y'all. None of it's difficult. It's all made available for you here. If you need more information on all the above, email globaloutreach at grace-bible.org. Welcome to Grace Card in the Pew Rack. If, if, if electronic means of connecting aren't good for you and you can't come at noon today, grab that welcome card from in front of you there. Write your name and your contact information. Write international student or short-term trip or whatever's on your heart today. Move it down to the right side of the row. So right side of your section, if you'll put the cards on the, on the right-hand side, we'll pick them up and somebody will respond to you. Or come today at noon and join us. Now I gotta say, because there's limited... Um, provision. Uh, the, the free lunch is for those who stay. Okay. So please don't go grab your free lunch and head home. If you want to stay and you want to engage in the tailgate, uh, head out, head to the right side, pick up your food, come back in the fellowship hall and join us. Thanks so much for your attention. I hope that a sense of passion for what God is doing here among the nations is conveyed. I hope your heart is touched. Let's pray together. Father, uh, we do express gratitude to you that you are doing something that is just exceedingly above and beyond anything that we could think or ask or imagine. Uh, you have involved this, this church in the middle of nowhere in a, in a global cause, and you've been bearing fruit through it for decades. And um, by grace, you've made us a part of that by uh, putting us in this church body. So thank you for what you're doing. And I just pray for each person here, myself included, that our heart's response uh, would be surrendered, willing, willing, uh, abandoned to hear your voice and to respond uh, in just the way this week that you would desire uh, for us to respond. And so we offer ourselves, we offer this time, we offer our application of this time to you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you all. Lots of opportunities this week. Hope to see you involved.